Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Hey all, this is Sadea, and I just wanted to give you all a heads up before we start the following episode. Um, it's with Remy Kanazi, and he came a few weeks back to Berkeley, uh, but I've been having terrible vocal problems due to stress-related issues, uh, and unfortunately, it's very evident throughout the episode. I'm actually still recovering, but I wanted to let you guys know that even though my voice sounds terrible, it's still a great interview, and I hope you guys can be patient with us. Uh, Linda sounds great, though, so maybe she'll carry she'll carry the episode for us. You're listening to Out of BS with Linda and Sadeo. I'm Linda. And I'm Sadeo. She's never seen the sea. Sunlight imprinted on her father's skin. Waves crashing at his feet. Smile tattooed underneath boyish grin. Snapping pictures with closing eyelids. Her father's face, flush on recollection, the same waves that had clenched like an angry jaw as his mother pushed him forward like a train car. Watched his neighbor drown, tears streaming, eyes connecting, screams muffled as inhalation suffocated lungs, muscles, wary, skin, pruning, barely a boy, knowing he'd never return. His neighbor, an older man, born an Akka, looked dapper at dinner parties, looked helpless that day. His body revolting against death, a pool intent on swallowing him, so many stroking to get on boats departing. Who'd have known? This gulf would have been their deathbed. She has been beaten, ID checked, body thrown to the ground, fists and feet pummeled, tender flesh, shoulder broken, heart too many times. Tear gas inscribed on her lungs, she wrote back on her breath that the canister's defeat is near. These fields are ours, she told me. Before the Europeans and Brooklynites, before the army jeeps and barbed wire, before the talks, roadmaps, and Swiss cheese plans, before declarations rewrote history, those hills met footprints, and that can't be erased. Like village massacres can't be erased. Like broken bones policies can't be erased. Like the screams ringing in her father's ears can't be erased. We are the boat returning to dock. We are the footprints on the northern trail. We are the iron coloring the soil. We cannot be erased. You just heard the very powerful voice of Remy Kanazi, a prominent voice within the Palestinian activist community. He's a writer, organizer, and poet. His messages are politically charged and unapologetic. Not one to sugarcoat, he works to educate through action. Going beyond his criticism of Israel's occupation of Palestine, he's a prominent advocate of ending the occupation through the global boycott divestment sanctions movement. Over the last several years, he's performed his poetry for audiences all over the world. He's on the front lines of this vicious fight for justice in Palestine, and we're lucky enough to gain some of his insights today. His most recent book, and what he's here to discuss, is Before the Next Bomb Drops, Rising Up from Brooklyn to Palestine. We'll be talking about that and a lot more. Welcome, Remy. Thanks for having me on. So, Remy, 
Because your work is so intricately intertwined with your personal journey, I kind of wanted to start off by asking you a little about your background. Can you talk about your family roots? Sure, yeah. Um, my parents are Palestinians. They're refugees uh, from 1948. My mother's side is from Yaffa. My father's side is from Haifa. My grandmother was pre- pregnant with my mom when they were kicked out of Palestine. Uh, they ended up in Lebanon, came to the U.S. in the 1970s, and I grew up in a small, very white town in western Massachusetts. So how did you start getting involved with activism? Well, I mean, so I grew up in this, you know, I grew up uh, as the youngest of three in the small town where I joke around and there was like 9,000 people, 8,990 of them were white. And then there was my brown family and we got like another brown family in the sixth grade. So it was an awkward cluster of emotions. And uh, I moved to New York City when I was 19. I was getting into leftist politics. I knew about my family's history, but I was getting into more of a political journey as it related to Palestine. And uh, I moved to New York City four months before 9-11. And when those two towers came down, there was so much vitriolic language. We got to turn that place into a parking lot mentality. And I didn't have like a proper way to kind of react against that anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim racism. And so I started reading everything I could from Palestinian intellectuals like Edward Said to anti-war historians like Howard Zinn to prison abolitionists like Angela Davis. And I actually started Uh, writing about Middle East politics before I became a poet. Uh, And in 2004, my brother and sister took me to go see Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway. That was the first time I saw poets like Suhar Hamad perform live, Stacey Ann Chen, and so many other people that were incorporating social justice, uh, their immediate environment and experiences into their cultural work. And for me, I felt like the average 19-year-old didn't want to read an op-ed in the newspaper or watch, hopefully not watch, racist cable news, but they would listen to a spoken word track. So for me, uh, spoken word was a way to get a cultural message, uh, a political message across through a cultural medium. You know, you've said that you're not a nationalist and you're not an ethnocentrist and it's not about you being Palestinian or Arab. The work that you do, it's about oppression overall. But I'm curious, would you have gone this route if you weren't Palestinian? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the way that I found this, my way into this work was through my family's experiences, through the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But I guess what I would say to that, and I can't remember, I mean, I guess that was back from years and years ago. But what I would say is this, is that, you know, it's not that the Palestinian people are special. It's to say that nobody should be ethnically cleansed. Nobody should see their, um, you know, uh, their families living under a system of occupation, apartheid and settler colonialism. So it's it's with that kind of mind of in the same breath that you're saying and the occupation, you should be saying and mass incarceration and the same that you're saying boycott, divestment, and sanctions, you should be saying divest from prisons. So for me, you know, we don't have to go overseas to see militarism at play, right? I mean, with the drone bombing of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, I mean, I live in a, a city where 5 million people were stopped and frisked under Michael Bloomberg. You have racist drug laws and mandatory minimums and, you know, right-wing capitalism operating in the United States. So it's, I, I think what I would mean by that is that If we're fighting against injustice uh, in Palestine, we have to be standing with undocumented communities here. Uh, If we're fighting against bombing overseas, we need to be challenging transphobia in our local communities. Uh, If we want to expect people to stand up uh, for Palestine, not in a kind of like transactional way, but like in a grassroots building, two-way organizing kind of way, I think communities need to come together. Uh, So for me, yeah, I I, I mean, I don't think it's because of a particular ethnicity or a particular region of the world, but it's to say that – you know, whether it's in our backyards, whether it's U.S. militarism being supported overseas or whether it's occupation apartheid in Palestine, what binds socially conscious people together is working against systems of oppression and we need to stand up and act. Do you think that solidarity building is taking on a new dimension today than it was years ago? Because I feel like I'm seeing a lot more of it among activists on the ground. 
like actually making an effort to really build those that solidarity in a new way that's much stronger today than it was before. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there's a long history, right? So when you're talking about like Black Palestinian Solidarity, for example, in SNCC and Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X, and there's a long trajectory and a history of that, or, you know, Palestinians, uh, the PLO and the ANC, uh, and on and on throughout the world. So I think that we are in an important time that has a longer history to it. And I think a lot of people have woken up and a lot of people have acted, whether that's Black Lives Matter, Baltimore and Ferguson, whether it's the U.S.-Mexico border, and you're looking at companies like Elbit Systems operating on the U.S. Mexico border and Palestine, G4S operating in prisons in the U.S. and Palestine, uh, looking at HP working with the Department of Homeland Security in Palestine. So I think that communities are, are stronger when they come together. And I think that it's always been part of the radical tradition. And I think that a lot of folks on campuses and local communities are building on past actions and also having new conversations. So for some people, it's a new conversation. Uh, for other folks, it's part of a, a longer history, a longer trajectory of organizing, whether in Oakland, in Chicago, uh, in St. Louis and beyond. And I think that there's really prime examples uh, that folks have, have pointed to. So Christian Davis Bailey, who I worked uh, with on the Black Palestinian Solidarity video, did a great interview with Electronic Intifada, uh, you know, talking about St. Louis is a great example where the St. Louis Palestine Solidarity Committee was working with the organization uh, for black struggle before the execution of Mike Brown um, and then working on a, a Veolia campaign that does uh, water waste management um, and had a, a contract up uh, coming up in, in St. Louis and also runs, ran the, at the time, the, the Jerusalem Light Rail Line that connect settlements in Jerusalem, Eged buses, uh, 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 toxic dumping in the West Bank, and so forth. So I think that, yeah, the more you link up with people, the more you build, the stronger your communities and your actions are going to be, uh, whether that's looking at the same corporations that are pressing people overseas and in the United States uh, or other forms of solidarity. So we've seen delegations go to Palestine. I was on a black delegation to Palestine in early 2014. That was followed up by the brilliant Dream Defenders delegation. But you also had the Right to Education tour come to the United States, uh, go to Ferguson, go to Detroit, meet with folks. And then those same students uh, went back to Palestine and at Beersheet University uh, held an event in solidarity with bloke black folks in the United States. So I think from statements to petitions to videos um, to delegations to actual real building and organizing in local communities, those are all uh, little bits and pieces and components that are building a bigger conversation. And, and I think that, you know, if, if I'm speaking on Palestine issues, any way that I can advance the conversation, any way that you can kind of uh, contribute to that in any kind of small, minuscule way, in the same way that you hope a, a poem does or anything else does in terms of Palestine and BDS and other forms of action. Uh, it's just, I think it's needed, it's necessary, and we just need to galvanize as many people as we possibly can. You also are a bit critical about allies of Palestine, particularly white and uh, non-Zionist Jewish allies. You have a poem, uh, and it's called Solidarity, in which you say, I'm not looking for you, academic savior. Can you actually, Linda, will you say it? Because I, it's this part, it's this one. I'm not looking for you, academic savior, know-it-all, solidarity activist, condescending anti-Zionist, owe you nothing for introspection, will award you no medal as you shout your name at the top of your lungs. So that, um, you know, remind me of uh, SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine organizations. And I know there's always like a div divisiveness in terms of how do we, um, how to feel about the white allies within the group. Right. They always assumed positions of leadership. And uh, were we supposed to just accept them as because because they're white, they're more likely to get heard by, you know, the 
by the government, by other white people, by other Jewish people, etc.? Or are we supposed to be offended in terms of like, this is our struggle, this is our issue, you know, we should we should be taking a more um, upfront position rather than have the white and Jewish non-Zionists, you know, take leadership positions in those groups. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a different question in terms of Students for Justice in Palestine. It's it's a solidarity organization. It's not a Palestinian organization, right? So it'll function differently. I mean, in the poem, it's not supposed to be like a wag the finger, you know, I'm so radical kind of thing. But it's more like, look, the Palestine solidarity community or the Palestinian community even isn't 15 speakers. It isn't five performers. And when we put people on pedestals and we give them this infallible status, I just think that those structures should be critiqued. And that includes myself. Like just because I'm Palestinian, just because I'm a poet doesn't mean that I don't have to abide by an ethical standard. And, And I think that, you know, there's a lot kind of within the poem of the way in which we hold people to this uh, you know, we, we we kind of put them on a pedestal and then anytime they kind of mess up, it's like, well, you can't be critical. And so I think that when you look at the fact that thousands and thousands of people are organizing across the United States, we don't want to make people out of movements, right? So we don't want to forego what's important about organizing. So when I think about the ba- the backbone and the foundation, it's Palestinian organizing communities. It's people that are doing the solidarity work, working two jobs in a relationship, double majoring, busting their behind just to get things going forward. So, you know, as much as we're fighting against injustice overseas, we don't want to replicate oppression within our own group. Um, So, yeah, and I think, look, within the United States, and this used to be much more the case of who was able to speak up on Palestine, who was a legitimate or palatable voice. And I think that it's, you know, it's a bogus and kind of like racist concept that Palestinians can't speak for themselves. Um, and, and, And I include also in the poem, like, of course, I want people in solidarity, and I'm thankful for it. I mean, I say as much within the poem. So again, it's not to to stop solidarity. It's not to say, you know, who should be speaking, because I think that there's a lot of brilliant Palestinians uh, speaking and activating and organizing. And I do think that there's also another question of the Palestinian experience and movement formation within the diaspora that is separate from the conversation of of the, what I address in the poem as well. Yeah, and I just want to add to that as someone who organized an SJP, I guess maybe like your interpretation of the poem wasn't necessarily what he intended, but on the, the thread of that conversation, um, I do think that it's important for Palestine organizers to stay away from self-righteousness. And also, to we do want, like as someone who produces a show that's definitely for the American public, right? And I try very much to bring Palestinian voices on as much as possible. Um, sometimes... You know, the if someone who's white, like, for example, Josh Rubner at the U.S. campaign and the Israeli occupation, he's white, but he is so good at expressing the financial intricacies of U.S. support for Israel. And it's important for us to remember that whoever is talented and can actually help benefit the cause through a voice and express our very what people think to be an extremely complex issue. If anyone can explain it in the correct way, I'm thankful for that person who wants to dedicate themselves to the cause and to who can actually explain it to people and help them understand because the problem is the miseducation um, and of Zionist propaganda in this country. 
What are your thoughts about yeah, that? Yeah, so I mean, I guess I would say this. So, so when I think about it, like within my own realm, um, or like you look at like electronic intifada, right? Mm-hmm. Not every right. writer's Palestinian, and a lot of you know they're brilliant. So it's kind of like I think that there's been a there was a very specific and intentional sidelining of Palestinian voices in the United States. This notion that the Palestinian voice wasn't palatable enough, that the Palestinian artist right. was too scary, that um, if it's a book written by a Palestinian, it's not going to have any sales. So we need to go with a white voice or a Jewish anti-Zionist voice because that's what's more acceptable uh, to people. And I think we should really, really push back on on that framework. In terms of um, folks organizing across the United States, yeah, I mean, if you're doing brilliant work, you're doing brilliant work. But at the same time, I think that we have to be cognizant of people that get into that kind of self-righteousness, that we're not kind of replicating these things on campus. Because whether you want to be a superstar poet or a superstar speaker or a superstar activist. It's really problematic. And I don't think that we should kind of like feed into this. um, You see some cool speaker, let's take a picture together and have it be your Facebook profile picture. I mean, I think that when you create idols out of activist organizing, you're really going down the wrong direction. And I think that the way that, that, uh, that the U.S. romanticizes previous struggles and turns those struggles into three people, it's erasing the brilliant, amazing work and, 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 and the levels of oppression that all of those people have faced, whether it's being thrown in jail, whether it's being shot in the street, whether it's being repressed within their own community. So I think for me, it's like even looking at my own position in this, if I die in a plane crash tomorrow, the movement for liberation in Palestine continues. Like it's not about me. It's hopefully about adding to the organized structures that I work with, maybe adding a bit to the conversation through poetry, hopefully kind of, um, yeah, being part of a larger community. I really think that we need to be investing in communities and thinking about it as us within our totality and us being small um, puzzle pieces and really kind of thinking on that notion that those small steps do create a big wave. So I think that, yeah, we want to be we want to check our egos at the door and, right. and kind of challenge lovingly um, some of the BS that happens. Because look, in the book, I talk a lot about uh, Israeli apartheid and occupation. I talk a lot about um, you know U.S. militarism, but I also get into conflict voyeurism and privilege and solidarity. And again, not to be like, I've read so much more than you. I'm so much cooler and more badass than you, but really because you actually care about the organizing spaces you're in and you want to move folks forward. And the way to kind of do that in kind of positive engaged ways is to lovingly self-critique our own work. Your work is not subtle. It takes on real experiences. And um, for example, ones you had probably organizing on a U.S. campus, um, for example, I mean, I'm assuming your the poem, An Open Letter to Campus Zionist Groups and University Chancellors, was inspired by those experiences. And I, I know this because your poetry speaks very clearly to me as someone who has... Um, that has experienced similar um, struggles on campuses trying to express my (laughs) activism for Palestine. So can you talk about your creative process? Like, how do you get from I'm a frustrated, like, activist trying to get my story across to superstar poet? How did you make poetry your full-time job? Uh, That's a hard question. Okay, by mistake. I mean, really. Like, so... Uh, I think my mom would agree with Superstar. I think everybody else would take issue. No, but <laughs> I mean, I, I started performing at in activist spaces and rallies mostly in, in 2006. And I felt like I didn't necessarily have an outlet. Um, you know, I didn't come up through the spoken word scene. So I'm not like a slam poet that went in slammed and then joined the slam team and then went to nationals and kind of created a name like that. I mean, I was performing at rallies uh 
standing in solidarity with you know folks uh, overseas or against the mass bombing of Lebanon uh, and kind of yeah activist events like that. And then somebody was like, hey, do you want to come and perform at my community event? And I'm like, sure. And then somebody's like, hey, do you want to come and perform on my ca- campus? And I'm like, okay. And then I think that that there was a drumming up, uh, you know, there was the advancement of U.S. war and U.S. militarism and also the, the war on Lebanon in 2006 and then the massacre on Gaza in 2008 and 2009, the massacre uh, in 2012, uh, the flotilla, the advent of Twitter and Facebook where you could disseminate angry angry thoughts pretty easily. And so it literally just happened where I kept performing and kept writing and kept getting more requests. And there was never like, I'm going to be a poet and this is what I'm going to do full time. I mean, like, who thinks that? And surely, (laughs) yeah, no one. Uh, Maybe someone does, but they didn't tell me about it. And I think that particularly because I didn't go the route of, of through the spoken word scene, I didn't know when I first started performing. I mean, there was maybe five, 10 SJP chapters. Now there's 170 today. Uh, you didn't realize that solidarity was going to kind of expand like that, that people were going to activate like that, that there was going to be this kind of charge. I mean, when I was first calling, you know, standing uh, and shouting for a cultural boycott of Israel, there weren't that many voices doing it. It was considered, you know, so radical and so out of the box. Um, and so I think that what is normalized today, normalization in a good way, <laughs> um, is is much different than than the scene ten years ago. I mean, when you first started performing on a college campus, you could barely say the word Palestine without being called an anti semite. I mean, like student groups would put on kind of like a horrible, not that great documentary, and it would be uh, uh, protested by Zionist groups on campus. So I think that you know to go from that to twenty five plus divestment bills, uh, the rise of cultural boycott, academic boycott, coalition building, uh, solidarity events. Uh, a challenging of the dominant media narrative. Things are really kind of going forward. And you don't want to be Pollyannish about it and you don't want to kind of overstate it. But there was that feeling that you were at step in stage one for so long and now feeling at stage three, it, you know, it feels almost good to 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 see that train pushing forward. And so in some ways, things have never been better globally uh, in regards to, to Palestine solidarity. And yet when you look in Palestine, in, in some ways, things have never been worse. So it's you're kind of juggling both of those emotions and realities and trying to navigate that space uh, with all of those things in mind. You mentioned Twitter and you have in one of your poems, Until It Isn't, you have a line that says, before a person I call friend defends massacres. And that like reminded me of just being on Facebook and how you don't discover someone's politics until they post something racist or like some, some event happens and they react to it, right? And, you know, usually a lot of people will just either engage with the person or delete them, um, you know, or privately like engage with them or whatever. How do you navigate instances like this? How do you handle them, especially since you're like more of a public figure? What, so what do you mean in that regards? How do I like, deal with opposition? Like, how do you deal with, well, well f- with opposition from, like, friends, from people you know personally, not just, like, some stranger coming up to you and... Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think that relationship operates that much differently. Like if we went to high school together or grew up together and you are offended my, by my views, you probably deleted me by now. Um, but I mean, all the, 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 the kids that I grew up with and I'm still friends with, they get it. 
You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've kind of drilled it into their head. I was like, this is, this is like why it's oppressive and why you shouldn't listen to the dominant media narrative. So, I mean, I will say that in that regard, it is kind of a one-on-one conversation knocking on each person's door. Like, so when it comes to the issue of Palestine in particular, I think that, that American apathy and ignorance is one of our biggest stumbling blocks, uh, more so than right-wing racists and Zionists. Um, and so if you could knock on 320 million American doors, you know, you wouldn't win over everyone. You're still going to have the Bill O'Reilly's. You're still going to have uh, the right wing racists. But I th- do think that you'd get 70 to 80 percent of, of the U.S. public uh, in the way that if you look at folks 18 to 30, uh, black folks, women, I mean, the way that the polls are going is much more in favor of Palestine. So I don't particularly think it's a good use of my time to, like, argue with a kid that I grew up with that you know, went and served in the military and bombed the living crap out of people. I mean, I think that the it's not a good uh, expense of my energy. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to tell somebody that that has a racist uncle and they go home and talk about stuff over the holidays, like cut that person out of your life. I mean, I guess it's still your uncle. But I'm very upfront about my views. And I really don't give a damn uh, if you disagree with them. I've thought about it. It's not like I'm just posting whatever jumps into my head uh, on Facebook, and I think I'm right. And I think that a lot of other people, uh, it's it, my ideas aren't original. Like you shouldn't be for military occupation. I can't come into your house and steal your stuff and steal your car and kill your family. And you're like, oh, I'm still cool with you. No, you wouldn't be okay with that. It's a settler colonial state built on stolen Palestinian land and thrives off stolen Palestinian resources. What is your defense of that? Nothing. Nothing good. It's not like I've heard like that gotcha question over the last 15 years and like I'm afraid to tell people about it. Like what is the purpose of stopping and frisking 5 million people, 90 percent of them black and Latino in New York City? It's a racist policy. Now, you're either racist uh, or you're against that policy, you know, or you or if someone informs you, then you should do something about it. You should change your mind. I'm not actually like angry about my views. I mean, <laughs> my poetry is really intense, but I'm very confident in where we're at. I mean, it's why I don't get ruffled when a right-wing Zionist asks a question in a Q&A because I don't have any fear that they're right. I don't have any fear that if we have that if I'm able to explain myself that somehow it's not going to resonate with the majority of the audience and I don't have any desire to win over Tea Party folks and, you know, the Bill O'Reilly crowd. I don't think that that's how history has ever developed. I don't think that's how social movements work. I'd rather build with black and Latino and queer folks and indigenous folks and white socially conscious folks and move across that spectrum um, and, you know, engage in that way. I mean, I think that we need to build a strong left. I think we need to challenge systems of oppression here and overseas. And I don't think that that's something to be ashamed of, afraid of or, or tepid about. You speak with much conviction. I don't. I don't know that many like activists are. They are scared. You know. I don't know that they have the same kind of conviction that you do. And and maybe your voice will fill, fill them with confidence in posting and and kind of being very clear about their views. I do think that there is a fear still, even though we've come a long way, at least in the last decade, in the ability for us to speak freely about our cause. There's still a long way to go. And maybe what would you tell? Um, to activists, young activists who are afraid to speak out because they're afraid of not being able to express themselves clearly about the issue or they don't know all the facts. You know, they might put something up about Palestine and someone totally misinterpret it. And, you know, and then it's like they haven't gotten to that point of conviction that you have. Like what might advice might you give young activists today? Yeah, look, I think it's really important to understand that I am not the big target. 
I mean, I have there, – there's something that insulates you with a big Twitter following or Facebook following or being in that public space. Like any angry thought that has ever been in my head has been posted online. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm much more afraid for like – you know, the Muslim kid in New York City, uh, you know, who's being surveilled and who, you know, I mean, like, I think that the 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 oppression, a lot of the oppression is happening in the shadows. I think that so. So I think that, yeah, when when you kind of think about it like that, I'd, I, I'm very careful in telling people what they should and shouldn't do, because I think that everybody's personal and local context is different. So I don't want to come on the radio and say you should be doing X, Y and Z or else you're not a good activist. Right. Um, but I think that 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 you you want to kind of push those boundaries. Like, so, for example, there's some people that are afraid of speaking up because they have family in Palestine and they're afraid of being denied entry. So I don't want to come on the radio and say, if you don't act like me, you're not doing things right. But I would think about, like, how you're operating within your personal capacity, how are you pushing the people that you're in contact with, whether that's friends, loved ones, coworkers, whether that's your campus community. Um, and there's a, and I would say it like this, be, there are many different ways that you can engage, whether it's running a Twitter or Facebook account, whether it's uh, writing a statement on your campus, whether it's helping draft an op-ed, whether it's organizing behind the scenes, or whether it's, you know, being out front and speaking and emceeing at events and being very public on the, public on the front lines of cultural boycott and divestment. So I think that each person needs to decide the best way that they can plug in. But I think that our strength is also in numbers, right? The more we come together, uh, the more that we're pushing forward. Um, and because because when I when I when I think. I, you're always thinking in dual terms, right? Because you have campus repression. You had the Jewish and Arab campus climate report where you have Mark Udoff that is, you know, frontally attacking BDS. Uh, you have things like Stand With Us and APAC and Sheldon Adelson and millions of dollars being dumped into anti-BDS and anti-SJP efforts. So uh, I would figure out what feels most comfortable to you. Uh, how can you have peer support, group support and move forward on that basis? Related to that, you've also been criticized that your work doesn't have humor in it, that it's very se- seemingly I angry. So no, 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 funny. no. Not you haven't been. Cr- I mean, in I your poem, hilarious. in your poem, you make it sound like people come at you saying, yeah, like, joking, yeah. Okay. So you say. <laughs> that was my attempt at a joke. <laughs> <laughs> you have a poem that starts with, you should be funny on stage. Tell jokes. Soften your message. Everyone likes humor. You're normal in conversation, but your poems are so angry. But, you know, you just said, like, your anger, you just let it out through your poetry on Twitter, whatever, when you feel it. But I have a question for you, and this could maybe be good for activists all over, is how do you take care of yourself as someone who's constantly thinking about, dealing with, working with such a serious issue, like such a heavy, not just Palestine, but just oppression in general. That's like a lot to be thinking about constantly. And that's your work. And you travel for that. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, it's like, how do you come back to yourself? How do you um, deal with your mental and emotional health? Really bad reality TV. No. Um, (laughs) So I would say, uh, first of all, that poem is toning it down and it garners a few laughs. It's written very sarcastically. No, no, it's it's actually, yes, it is pretty sarcastic. Like, um, people should check out the book, first of all, and you'll see it. My mom loves it. She says it's the best thing to come out since uh, Betlawa. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Hold on. The I poem, mean, granted, she is my mom, so. The poem is called Tone It Down. 
It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look self care is, is very important, and, and many, many other brilliant people have spoken it on uh, better than me. And I'm not that great with self care. I mean, I'm doing like 45 shows this fall. Um, I'm working on a couple side projects because you are responding to all the brilliant work that everybody else is doing. And you feel like, you know, the more the more you kind of work, the more kind of move, things move forward. So you never want to slow down. But you also don't want to get burnt out. And so I don't think that it's either organize on Palestine or feminist issues or queer issues or labor issues or Black Lives Matter 100 hours a week or do nothing at all. I mean, there's there there's a spectrum. You know, there's ways to plug in, whether that's 30 minutes a day, three hours a week, three hours a month. Um, but what I would say is, is yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, you want to you wanna kind of be able to decompress. You want to be able to uh, find some kind of happiness within this work. I, I saw Angela Davis, uh, I mean, I watched the YouTube of it, uh, give a talk and it was kind of talking about how this work is intergenerational and, and, and how she has been doing this work for 50 years and then it's going to extend beyond her lifetime. And so kind of thinking about uh, your own mental health and your own uh, care for yourself. I mean, I think that we need to live and love and laugh and enjoy and, you know, so I mean, no joke, I watch a lot of like kind of not great movies. You want to find a little bit of of, of a lighter point in your life. And look, I think that, that if you're fighting against a, a system of oppression or working on a campaign, I mean, what is the purpose of it? I mean, the, I mean, if we, if we talk about liberation in Palestine, right? I mean, I don't think that, that organizing through misery is a way to go. And it's why I think that some of the strongest groups do retreats and have uh, good kind of organizing relationships and peer mentorship and stuff like that because it is about – uh, love and building each other up and community. And I mean, that's that should be part of why we're operating as well, or it should be an integral part of, of the fabric of our, our community structures. So it's you, I am outraged by these things that are happening, not so I can just be outraged until the day I die, but because in a non-cliche, corny way, you want to see a better world. Right. But sometimes it's hard to balance your privilege with the lack of privilege that the people you're fighting for, um, you know, have. So it's hard to balance that. Like you're constantly being like, oh, okay, I'm comfortable and I'm laughing at the show and whatever while. Yeah. But you know, like, and, and I think about that. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, no, but I, I think about that too. I've like that guilt that you just feel all the time. Like as, and you're an activist in this country, you still have the benefits. You can actually shut things off. Palestinians in, you know, Palestine, occupied Palestine can't do that. But you know what? I hear the most joy and the most laughter I've ever heard on the ground in occupied Palestine. I think about them and I think they would never want me to hate my life because of the occupation. They're trying to enjoy and live their lives as much as they possibly can living under occupation. So I don't think us sacrificing joy in life is helping them in any way. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that like the idea that people in Palestine don't live and love and go to weddings and and and, and I mean, it's 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 about a, a, a structural oppression, not how can we perpetually be miserable wherever we're at. And look, I mean, I think that understanding your circumstances, understanding where you're coming from. I mean, I, like in the last book I wrote about being honest with yourself and your experiences. I wrote about in, in a poem called Home, like I didn't grow up in a refugee camp in Lebanon. I grew up in a small town in Western Massachusetts. It's like don't represent yourself to be something that you're not. So I think that the idea of not having joy or not decompressing or not taking a break is 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 kind of uh, – it's, it's not the vision or the outlook that we should be fighting for anyway. Um, 
and it's also – I mean it erases joy and uh, in, in self-care and love in Palestine as well in a way. So – Remy, you were recently part of a collaborative video titled, When I See Them, I See Us. When I see them, I see us. Every 28 hours of black life is stolen by police or vigilantes in the U.S. Every two hours, a Palestinian child was killed in Israel's attack on Gaza last summer. Eric Garner, 43 years old, father of six, Grandfather, friend. Ghalia Al-Ghannam, seven years old, killed when an Israeli missile struck her home. Hashem Abu Maria, 45 years old, father of four, human rights worker. Ayana Jones, seven years old, killed in her sleep by Detroit police. When, when I, I see, see them, them, I see us. us. Harassed, beaten, tortured, dehumanized. Stopped and frisked. Searched at checkpoints. Administrative detention, youth incarceration. When, when I, I see them, I see us. From Rikers Island to Ofer Prison. From Rafat to Chicago. Lives are being stolen. Remember them. We are not statistics. We are not collateral damage. We have names and faces. Sakia. Nadim. Kimani. Jawahir. Renisha. Muhammad. They burned me alive in Jerusalem. They gunned me down in Chicago. They shot our water tanks in Hebron. They cut off our water in Detroit. They demolished our homes in the Nakab. They swallowed our homes in New Orleans. When, when I, I see, see them, them, I see us. The video parallels the experiences of Black Americans and Palestinian life under occupation. Can you talk a little about the creation of that video? Sure, yeah. I mean, so I was one of the writers on the video with uh, Christian Davis Bailey and um, Mari Morales-Williams. And uh, I think, you know, it came out of a a certain movement. And as we talked about, it has uh, a longer history to it. And it was kind of in a way of as bombs are dropping on Gaza, as people are rising up uh, in Ferguson after the execution of Mike Brown, that kind of feeling of enough is enough. Whether it's occupation apartheid in Palestine, whether it's the execution of black people every 28 hours in this country, you know, the more and more people are standing shoulder to go- shoulder against systems of oppression, uh, the stronger they'll get. Uh, and 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 I so I think that the 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 coming together itself is is a political action. And again, like I said, I mean, it has a longer history and a longer trajectory, and it builds on local organizing and local actions. It builds on literature uh, that folks have produced. Uh, you've had delegations. You've had solidarity statements. Uh, and I think that the the work is important. It's essential. And, and if it adds just one little bit to the conversation, then I think it's, uh, it's, it's hugely successful. And talking about intergenerational earlier, I wanted to mention um, with Angela Davis, you said that the work that you guys do is intergenerational. The video is intergenerational. There are a lot of figures, recognizable figures within the black movement and also the Palestinian movement. How did you guys kind of get together and, and who like conceptualized this video? How did this happen? Yeah, so the, the Black Palestine and Solidarity uh, video was the coming together of a lot of brilliant organizations like the Dream Defenders, BYP 100 the Arab Studies Institute. You can actually check out BlackPalestinianSolidarity.com, which includes a lot of information on the background of the video, um, the video itself, and uh, a lot of folks that are in it. I mean, I think that it that it's easy to put together a project like this when people already have relationships. So when you're looking at 
Angela Davis and Robin D.G. Kelly, when you're looking at uh, you know, Palestinians that are featured in the video, uh, because you're connected with folks, because you're building, because there have been solidarity events, because there have been delegations, because there's been joint organizing, when you go to put together a video uh, affirming black Palestinian solidarity, affirming this kind of idea of standing shoulder to shoulder, uh, recognizing that some of the same tear gas canisters being fired in Ferguson are being fired in Palestine, looking at companies like G4S. So I mentioned Christian Davis Bailey before. Uh, he helped put together the Black for Palestine statement um, that specifically mentions uh, G4S. I mentioned the work of Organization for Black Struggle and the St. Louis Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, operating and organizing before the execution of Mike Brown. So I think that this builds on uh, a larger history within the sense of the last three to five years and also uh, historically. On that same thread, you you write a poem in, in your book, Appetite for Appropriation. You say, black lives aren't a punchline. Black lives matter isn't a slogan. Black suffering isn't a tool to fight another community's persecution. If to prop up your own plight, you have to shove another people's face down in the mud, you're simply affirming the very structure of cruelty you claim to be combating. Can you kind of just talk about what you're referring to um, in that poem? Yeah. And look, I mean, I want to say because I don't want things to kind of be reduced to snippets or platitudes. Like the book isn't written to kind of wag the finger holier than thou. I'm so radical. Let me like call folks out. But much more in kind of like these are important critical issues that we need to talk about. I think that solidarity is important. I think it's critical. I think it needs to be a two-way street. So when I think about um, struggles in the United States, like I, I don't want to go to Ferguson October because I'm trying to center Palestine, but because you're disgusted by the execution of black people within the United States. I don't think that like I deserve a pat on the back for standing with undocumented communities. You should be doing that. You know, so I think that that the ways in which we want to engage, you just want to be mindful. You want it to be intentional. You don't want it to be appropriative. We don't want to use uh, other people's struggles as a prop to recenter or uh, prop up our own issues. And so I think that 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 yeah, it's just kind of like the way in which we engage communities and the way in which we're building um, because you don't and, – and also like there are nuances and there are contexts and there are – you know, the Palestinian community isn't a monolithic block and neither is the black community, neither uh, uh, are indigenous or queer communities and on and on and on. And so I think that there's a longer arc to the poem but really just to, to kind of question of like how we're engaging. So as a Palestinian, I am very sensitive – uh, about uh, appropriation or I'm very sensitive and I'm very sensitive to it vis-a-vis -vis Israel in terms of like appropriating land and resources and food and culture and reframing it as Israeli. Um, but I think that also operating in the United States um, – you know, we're at a, we're at a very specific moment, at a very specific time, uh, where you're kind of engaging and building with folks, and I think just kind of like operating in those in ethical, non-appropriative ways uh, is really the way to go. And it's explained more thoroughly and fleshed out within the poem. It is, it is, and I only bring it up because I know that there are going to be listeners who are interested in these things, and they're going to want to know more. Like, what is what does it mean to appropriate something? You know, what it might be obvious to you and to people who are within the movement, but I think for the newer generation of activists, especially coming to this crossroads where really, really deep solidarity building is being is taking place right now. Well, yeah. So if you look at the first part of that poem, it's 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 kind of like it's starting with the view of like we are almost operating in like a post-racial world, right? So this kind of idea of like the civil rights movement is behind us, and you know, black suffering was a thing of the 
past and it was like based on a comment where somebody said Arab is the new black and that is like problematic on like just 97 different levels. And so again, like not to wag wag the finger. I mean I actually have a poem called uh, you are not that badass. Hashtag dear Twitter revolutionary, which is which is like a really funny poem. But I just <laughs> sounded such like a condescending, rude person on the page. I was like, I can't include this in the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because because look, uh, uh, I don't think that it's about me. I don't think it's about my poetry book. I do think that it's about organizing and building. And um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of questions around the way in which we engage and like, are you doing it to like puff up your own ego or are you doing it because you care about this critical work that needs to be done. So I, I try not to speak in absolute except when we're talking about Zionism, white supremacy, prisons, you know, like very identifiable structures of oppression, not somebody that I might kind of have a minor disagreement with or they might not have every single political viewpoint on their pad that I have on my pad. So, yeah, just for people to kind of be mindful of how they engage in in activism, whether or not they have the best of intentions, there are sensitivities that we should all be aware of in, in how we engage I have a lot of leeway for folks. You know what I mean? Like when I'm organizing, if I feel like a person does – like intention matters to me, right? Like you don't want to have to like hold everybody's hand and like walk across the crosswalk, you know. But at the same time, like uh, I I try to reserve my vitriol for people who really deserve it. And and, and I think that if the book or if a performance or if a hard Q&A – can lead to like a little bit more education and hopefully action. So you want to not just talk about the oppression, not just allude to it, but actually challenge those structures as well. And I think that so not just on the issue of Palestine, but in a day-to-day real kind of like work substantive way, what can we do to kind of move things forward? And, you know, whether it's coalition building, whether it's challenging the dominant media narrative, BDS, and all of these things are complementary and intersecting, but we got to keep moving things forward. So we're going to have you perform another poem right now, Remy. Why don't you uh, do Remy's choice? So for anybody that doesn't know, in, in, in 2005, Palestinian civil society called for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against the state of Israel until it complied with three basic demands. Number one, ending the occupation of all Arab land and taking down of the apartheid wall. Number two, the right of return for Palestinian refugees, uh, 750,000 who were ethnically cleansed in 1948 and waves of ethnic cleansing that have taken place throughout. And number three, equality for all Palestinians living inside of the state of Israel who face more than 50 laws that systematically discriminate against them in terms of labor, education, marriage, and so forth. Uh, So you've seen divestment bills on college campuses sprout up across the United States. Uh, For anybody that doesn't know what divestment is, let's say your university invests in Caterpillar. Uh, Caterpillar sends over armored and D9 militarized bulldozers to the Israeli state that have bulldozed uh, 27,000 homes since 1967, uprooted more than a million olive trees. So essentially what students are saying is we don't want our tuition dollars, our endowment dollars uh, profiting off of systems of oppression. Uh, So we want to pull out of those corporations until they end their human rights abuses. This poem is called This Divestment Bill Hurts My Feelings, and it's done in two voices. Number one, the uh, SJP slash Remy Kanazi voice. I mean, obviously not me. I'm 34, so I'd be like a double PhD by now. Uh, And the other voice, uh, the, the Zionist voice on campus that essentially wants to pad and affirm systems of oppression. Uh, If you can't tell the difference between the two voices on air, uh, I messed up. Hope you enjoy the poem. This divestment bill hurts my feelings. This divestment bill, it hurts my feelings. That caterpillar bulldozer ended life in the body of an American citizen, drove her bones into the ground while a company cashed in on the sale. 
the claws of D9 bulldozers unearthed the livelihood of occupied Palestinians, uprooting their graveyards to make way for illegal settlements. But we need a positive campus climate. While HP stock rises on division, producing technology to segregate Palestinians, biometric IDs at checkpoints, enhancing the naval blockade of an open-air prison, Palestinians on campus listen to words like positive, climate, hurt feelings, knowing their tuition invests in companies raining terror on loved ones. That's suffering. Like their voices is non-existent to student board members looking for cushy jobs at top five law firms. But this divestment bill, it's divisive. The Montgomery bus boycott, divisive. The great boycott, one-sided, abolishing slavery, radical, Nelson Mandela, a terrorist, indigenous, savages, women's suffrage, complicated, desegregation, provocative, Hiroshima security, internment camps of necessity, Bantustan's autonomy, Iraq liberation, Palestine barren. There is always, always going to be an excuse catchphrases, talking points, strip away names and faces. We are being militant, unreasonable. There's context to this oppression. The word apartheid, it it makes you feel uncomfortable. It's apartheid by definition. Fits the 73 convention. By law, it is a crime against humanity. Two sets of laws for two people. Labor, land ownership, access to education, 66 years of colonization, 50 laws of discrimination, 27,000 homes demolished, nearly a million arrested since 67. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No one said Israel doesn't have problems. But why are they singling out on college campuses? You mean like... Darfur, Tibet, South Africa, sweatshops, Coca-Cola, animal testing, the Keystone Pipeline, the prison industrial complex, fossil fuels, teacher unions, university cuts, and bottled water. The real question, why are you singling out any injustice for protection? Let me get the next one for you. Israel is democratic. Democratic like uh, coal is clean, Miller Lite is the same great taste, less filling, and McDonald's salads are healthy. These are not imagined Scenarios, our tuition dollars, are profiting off of death. Divestment is the next step. This is not about a nation or a people, but what's being done to people. In our names, with our currency, this university will not liberate anyone, but it can choose to cease making a buck off of misery. Vote yes for divestment. No to appeasement. Affirming injustice isn't positive. For any climate. Of course, this conversation could go on forever and people can learn more about how to engage themselves and go beyond words and to action. Um, Why don't you tell them how they can do that? First, how can they get your book and hear more about your work and how can they engage with the BDS movement? Sure. Yeah. I mean, ways to to check out my work. I'm at RemyKanazi.com. You can also check me out on Twitter and Facebook. The book is available on Haymarket Books and a lot of other independent sellers and then some terrible corporate ones that I won't mention over air. Um, And then in terms of engaging BDS, I mean, I would think locally, right? I mean, you have local campaigns, national campaigns, uh, international campaigns. So kind of figuring out where you're at. So if you're a student, SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, is a good way to plug in. If you're an academic, uh, working on academic boycott uh, is a good way to plug in. Uh, If you're working in a local community, Sometimes you might want to be thinking about consumer boycott. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I would literally. Well, how, how can they do that? 
Like, where can they physically go to find this information? Sure, yeah. I mean, you can go to bdsmovement.net to find out more about BDS generally. You can go to usacb.org to find out more about cultural and academic boycott uh, in the United States. If you're in a local community, we have everything from Sacramento BDS to Philly BDS to Adela, New York, which is a group that I work with. So across cities in the U.S. or globally, you have actions that are taking place. You have organizations that are building. So, um, you know, you can always hit me up as well and be like, hey, I'm in Portland. Well, there's a Portland group, too. But like, how do I get involved? I promise I will reply to you. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Remy. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. You can email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at Arabiyat and on Facebook.com slash Arabiyat Podcast. Our theme song is by Muqata'a. The track is called Ahyat. Follow him on SoundCloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T.